Bibles to the book of Acts. This morning, uh, we are going to do a little bit of kind of a Bible study. This is almost going to be like Sunday school. You kind of know what I mean? Like sometimes I like teach and sometimes I, usually I preach on Sunday mornings, but this morning is going to be kind of teachy. You know what teachy means? Is teachy even a word? I don't think it is. But it is now. And uh, that's what this morning is going to be. Because you remember that we have made our way through the first half, kind of the first volume, uh, the first chapter of the book of Acts. And we're kind of at that halfway point where we're just putting pause on our progress through the text to say, okay, now let's, let's kind of take a view from the mountaintops and see what some of the highlights are. So a few weeks ago, we kind of said, well, what are the, the theological themes? What are the highlights that emerge from the book of Acts that we've seen so far and that we're going to continue to see as we go forward? And then uh, two weeks ago, I believe, we spent some time asking ourselves the question, how do we learn from uh, uh, narrative literature, right? Like, how do we look at a book like Acts, which is in narrative form, and discern what we're supposed to do about it? And, and we said that was the, the normative question, which is just a big $50 word that says, is this, is this what God is, is explaining to us is the norm? Um, and from that, we also ask ourselves the question, what is prescriptive? In other words, what of the text is prescribed for me or for us as a church? What are the things that we are supposed to be doing, supposed to be emulating based on the text? And remember, we kind of gave ourselves some rules of Bible study that help us. And you remember that at the end, I gave you, I think, four principles. The, 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 one of the last principles that I said was the highlight of them all, the one that, that superseded all other considerations. When we're looking at a narrative text of literature, the, the thing that we want to weigh the heaviest is what? When we're deciding whether this is something that is prescribed for us as believers, for us as a church, as we're discerning that, the, the, the main thing that we want to be thinking about is what? Remember, location, location, location. What? Right. What else do we see in the broader New Testament? And so this morning... What I want for us to do is to just say, okay, what lessons are important in the book of Acts for us to keep in mind as a local church? All right, this is the birth of the church. And so I want to ask, and the reason I did a couple weeks ago, we did that kind of Bible studies because some of what we're going to learn this morning, some of what we're going to consider this morning, really comes from that logic that there are certain patterns that are set up for us in the book of Acts that really we ought to continue, that we ought to uh, be normative, that ought to be things that we continue to do. And so I wanted for us to have that, that background. And so this morning I'm calling Lessons from the Early Church. Uh, these are really things that we can learn. I will say this too. If you've been under uh, the preaching, teaching ministry of North Hills for any length of time, you're probably not going to hear anything new this morning. That doesn't mean you can check out, right? Because these are things that are important for us to review from time to time. So um, as I studied and prepared, I realized that a lot of this material is actually um, material that we cover in our new members class. Now, for some of you, that's been a long time since you took the new members class. And I think it's very pertinent at this point because it's so um, embedded in the book of Acts that, that we ask ourselves some questions that, that might be review in some sense, but important for us uh, to think about as well. So before we do that, let's just pause for a moment, ask for God's help and then consider some lessons from the early church. Father, we do thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the patterns that we see in it, the things that we can learn from others who have gone before us. And we pray, Lord, that we would be quick to remember that really we are in a heritage of, of the church of Christ that goes back to these early centuries. And help us, Lord, to be faithful as we continue the mission that you gave those apostles and those in the early church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. A few weeks ago, when we considered theological themes that emerge from the book of Acts, we pointed out the, the importance of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, you remember that Acts is, is a sequel, right? And it's a sequel to what? Two, I'm sorry, I heard it, right? Luke, yeah. So it's really kind of part two of Luke's anthology, right? And he says at the beginning of Acts, what? Uh, the, the former treatise I wrote to you, Theophilus, that's like the, the last letter I wrote to you was all that Jesus began to do and teach, right? And now this treatise, this letter, this book of Acts, as we call it, is what Jesus continues to do. But Jesus is no longer on earth. Yet he's the main character of the book of Acts. So how is Jesus still active in the book of Acts? It's through what? Through the person of the Holy Spirit, right? right? So Jesus is continuing his work, but now he has sent the comforter, the one who he told his apostles would teach you all things. Right, so the work of Jesus is continuing, the gospel of Jesus is continuing, and this is what Jesus is continuing to do now through chosen men empowered by the Holy Spirit. And, right, and this is the way that the book of Acts starts. In fact, it's right there in the key verse, which is what? Who remembers the key verse of Acts? 1.8, right? And that starts by saying, you will receive power when? Go and wait in Jerusalem for, for the Holy Spirit, right? So you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the whole book, all of these wonderful things that we see happening in the book of Acts is predicated on, it is built on the reality that, that Christ is still active in the person of the Holy Spirit. One of our discipleship groups was talking this morning about the doctrine of the Trinity. And you understand the reality that Jesus Christ is fully God, God the Father is fully God, God the Holy Spirit is fully God, and they are, they are one being, yet three persons. And you say, I don't understand that. Good, that makes two of us, right? I mean, it is, it is the reality that is taught in Scripture. We kind of summarize the whole doctrine by referring it to the doctrine of the Trinity, and, and it, is, it is really the basis of Christianity, because if you deny anything of the Trinity, you've denied something integral to, to Christianity, to the gospel itself. All right, so we have the Holy Spirit doing the work, and he's behind the scenes. But he is, if you, if you go to a, to a ship, right, and you go deep down in the recesses of the ship, you, you go down to to where those guys are, are sweating and working and running the engine. You know, nowadays it's probably like a diesel engine or, or something like that. And days gone by, it might have been, you know, shoveling coal to power the steam. Um, that, that's where the power is. It's not the part of the ship that you see. It's not the part that's the most prominent. Yet it's what propels the ship. 
And the Holy Spirit is that power that drives everything that is happening in the book of Acts. So you will receive power after the Holy Ghost is upon you. And so now the Holy Spirit is mentioned 70 times over the course of 68 verses in the book of Acts. His power is seen all throughout the book. Now, we've already talked about this when we hit kind of theological highlights, but it is good for us to be reminded of this as a lesson for the local church. Why? Well, Romans 5, Romans 5, 5, and if you want to study some of these passages out later, I would encourage you to just jot them down. Romans 5, 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 5, teach us that the Holy Spirit lives within each believer as of the moment of salvation. Because in Scripture, the indwelling of the Spirit is synonymous with salvation. If you want to look at a few passages, consider 1 John 5, 9 and 10. Consider Jude 19. But I think the one that states it the most bluntly is Romans 8, 9, which is not populating correctly here, so I'll read it to you. You are not of the flesh... But in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. I mean, that's, that's stated pretty bluntly. Like, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. You don't have Christ. I mean, it's a very binary thing. All right, so to, to be saved, to be born again, is to have the Spirit. There's no second blessing. There's no additional work of grace that bestows the Spirit. The Spirit is indwelling every genuine believer. Now, that's important as we think about the doctrine of the local church. Okay, as we think about what's called ecclesiology, right? The, the doctrine of the church. It's important because of what we read in our call to worship this morning. So Ephesians 4 says there's one faith, there's one Lord, there's one baptism. And scholars discuss what that means, but I happen to think he's probably talking about the baptism of the Spirit in that context. And there's, there's one Spirit. Do you recognize the importance of that for a local church? You cannot have a church if it's not for the Spirit. The thing, one of the things that we all have in common is that we have believed in the gospel. If you're a member of North Hills Church, you've testified to the fact that you have believed in the gospel. That is, that is to say, you have repented of your sin, you've turned from your sin to depend on Jesus Christ alone. And at the moment of conversion, the moment of being born again, you are given the gift of the Holy Spirit which we're told is the, the earnest money, we're told in Romans 8. It is the down payment of our salvation. You know what earnest money is? You go to buy a house, right? You, you, um, you sign the contract, and then you write out a check. And this check is the, is the first installment, if you will. It is the, the evidence, the promise that I'm going to follow through with this contract. Well, well God has given us a, a promise check. It's called the Holy Spirit. All right? and, and one day our faith will be made sight 
when we see Jesus Christ. But until then, we've actually been given the Spirit. And that is one of the things that unites a local church together. That the testimony of our faith is we've been converted, we've been made new again in Christ, and have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now that's important for a local church to keep in mind because it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it, that's not a small thing. The church, the unity itself, is based on the baptism and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because all believers have the Holy Spirit. However, all believers have the Holy Spirit. However, that doesn't mean that His full power is always active in our lives. All right, and this is the command that we're given in Ephesians. All right, Ephesians 5, do not be drunk in want with wine, uh, but be filled with the Spirit. The command is to be filled with the Spirit. So here is Paul, under inspiration, talking to believers who he said has, have the Spirit, yet he is saying, now be filled with the Spirit. So filling is something different than indwelling. You, you, you with me? All right? Filling has to do with, like, like, so we use the word this way, right? If you say, I was filled with anger, what does that mean? Yeah, it was just consuming me. It was just, like, everything I did was just informed by that anger, okay? That's the idea of the filling of the Spirit, right? When we are, we are filled with the Spirit, we are, we are controlled by, we are driven by, we are consumed by the Spirit. So really, filling has not to do so much with how much of the Spirit you have, but if we could put it this way, how much of you the Spirit has. Does that make sense? All right, so how much control is given? How much we are living under the control of the Spirit? Um, now, now, don't mistake this for something mystical or something weird. Right? It really boils down to living in obedience and dependence on God. Obedience to the Word and, and dependence on His power, right? Because if you go to the Colossians, we see the same fruits of living filled with the Spirit listed out as being submissive to the Word, which was inspired by the Spirit, all right? So, so don't divorce, you know, being filled with the Spirit over here and being obedient to the Word. They're, they're the same, right? But it takes supernatural empowerment to be obedient to the Word, doesn't it? Right? I mean, you think about it. When you are responding, you know, you're, you, you've only had a few hours of sleep, right? You're, you're on, your kids are on your, la their, your last nerve. They're like dancing on that last nerve, right? You know what I'm talking about? Right? And, and you are now challenged to speak the truth in love. you telling me that doesn't take supernatural power, <laughs> right? So, so the work of the Spirit is that which energizes us, that which motivates us, that which gives us the aid, the grace we need to live by the Word. That is living filled with the Spirit. And so when Spirit-filled words come out of our mouth, when Spirit-filled actions come out of us, they flow out of our heart. That is the work 
of the Spirit. And so we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Now that's important for us in our individual lives, in our responses to others. It's also important for us when we think about communicating the gospel, isn't it? I mean, the Spirit does the work. The Spirit draws, the Spirit convicts, salvation cannot happen without the work of the Spirit. Do you hear me? It is not the work of man. And we are called to be faithful in communicating the gospel to our friends and neighbors around us, but but the, the Spirit must work. We can't convert anyone. So we look at a church in the book of Acts that is just going gangbusters. I mean, it's like wildfires. The gospel spreads all around the, around the known world. And we look at that and say, now how can we duplicate that? What kind of program can we come up with that's going to spread the gospel like that? Now, I'm, I'm a systems guy. I like, I like programs and plans and systems. Are any of you like that? You'd be like, no, I just I fly by the seat of my pants. Well, good for you. I'm a systems guy. I like to know what's the plan, uh, how, how are we going to implement that, what, what program can we institute to make sure that that's, that's continuing forward. And the problem with people like me is we can just sometimes forget that plans and programs, although they're good and they have their place and they are important, um, they mean nothing without the power of the Spirit energizing all we do as a church. And so when we think about church growth, when we think about what what we want God to do here at North Hills, are we dependent on Him? Are we crying out to Him to do the work? Now, that's not to say we shouldn't have a vision. We shouldn't have a master plan. Uh, We should have those things. Uh, a, A wise man foresees the evil and turns himself aside, right? James says, you know, if the Lord will, we will do this or that. So planning is biblical, but what is unbiblical is for us to just go through our motions of making our plans, implementing our programs, and forgetting that the Holy Spirit is necessary to build a church. I told you I wasn't going to preach. This is sounding very preachy, sorry. Right? This is something that's important for us to remember as a church. When we're sharing the gospel, when we're growing in church, when we're responding to others, when we're enduring hardship, which if we respond as we ought to, like Christ in the face of hardship, that is a, a work of the Spirit. That is a supernatural work. And so it's important for us to be reminded from the book of Acts the need for the Spirit's power. Now I want for us to get into some very practical things because Acts demonstrates some things that are exceedingly practical. And these are the things that I referred to that we touch on in our new members class as we think about Acts demonstrating the importance of church order. So we, we, <clears throat> we re, you might recall that a few weeks ago we looked at what was normative, that is, what is prescribed. Uh, we mentioned it's important to consider what the rest of the New Testament says, so none of the things in the book of Acts can we think about <clears throat> without broadening our thinking out to the entire New Testament. So Acts actually introduces some things. Um, that we, we need to consider in light of the rest of the teaching of the New Testament uh, to understand better. The, the thing that we want to think about when we're looking at the overall New Testament is this. The local church is at the very center of God's work in this age. Let me say that again. The local church is at the very center of what God is doing in this age. I mean, think about it this way. 
all except one of the books, uh, the, the epistles, the letters of the New Testament were written to a local church or it was a traveling letter to a a certain group of local churches like Galatians, that's actually a region where there were a handful of churches and they passed this letter around, or to the pastoral leader of a local church, this would be right, the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus. And so we have really carrying through the entirety of the New Testament this theme that we sometimes almost forget about because it's the bedrock. I mean, it is the thing that everybody's standing on, that the, the local church is the very center of what God is doing in this age of redemptive history. Now, because of that, it comes as no surprise then that Acts demonstrates some important aspects of church order. And the first one that I want us to, to consider is this idea of healthy leadership. The, the New Testament encourages and acts models for us healthy leadership. You say, okay, what is healthy leadership? And so some thoughts for us um, to consider as we think about what healthy leadership is. I want us to consider um, three terms, and, and if you've, you've heard me teach on church governance or polity, that kind of thing, you've heard this come up before. Right? There are basically three titles that are given for the, the leader of the church, or the leaders of the church, right? And uh, anybody know what they are? Three main titles that are given. I'll give you the first one, pastor. That's the easy one. What's that? So I'm talking about three titles for one office. There we go. There we go, pastor, elder, bishop. Or bishop can also be translated overseer, right? So you've got those three, those three main. The first one is pastor. Um, it's the, actually the word shepherd. Uh, you've heard me perhaps mention before that in some languages it's actually the same word. Spanish, for example, uh, el pastor es un pastor, right? Uh, the pastor is a shepherd, we would say in English, but it's the same word. Uh, same way in the Greek language, this word poimen, if you're interested, is a, it's a relational term that, that highlights the need for God's people to be fed the word, uh, to, protect, to be protected, to be patiently led. Uh, this is a beautiful image that would have been well understood in, in that era because this would have been something they would have seen commonly. Uh, this shepherd, this one who leads the sheep. And, and so uh, we're given the responsibility, pastors are given the responsibility to shepherd the flock of God which is among you. That's how Peter puts it. We preached through Peter several months ago. The, other, the, the second one that you mean, so the first one we're thinking of is pastor or shepherd. The second one we want to be thinking about is, is overseer. And I, 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 I hesitate to get too technical, right? So forgive me for a moment, but this is actually a compound Greek word. The, the two words that make up this word are, are the prefix to, to over and then the word one who sees. So literally it means one who oversees, an overseer. And in case you're interested, it actually carries into English. The, the Greek word is episkopos. And do you hear any English word in that? Episcopal, right. And that's where the word comes from. It's actually a Greek word that's carried into 
into English, right? So this is a compound word. It carries the idea of, of oversight. It was a political superintendent in those days. Um, if you were using the New King James, or the Old King James for that matter, you see it still rendered as bishop, all right? Um, it was translated that way in 1611 almost as a tip of the hat to the ecclesiastical structures that were in place, if you know what I mean, right? Uh, really, the literal translation of it is overseer. Um, and it was used for, a, a, like I said, a, a Greco-Roman political supervisor. And so in the New Testament, it came to be used of the church office. And in fact, every time this word is used in the New Testament, it refers to the church office except one time, 1 Peter 2, where Jesus is said to be the overseer of your soul. All right, so generally this word is used one who, who sees. All right, so our three words. The first one is pastor, shepherd. The second one is overseer. And then the third one um, that was already mentioned uh, is in Greek, presbyteros. Again, do you hear a, a, a English word there? Presbyterian, right? That, that's exactly where it comes from. Um, and this is the word elder. It's actually carried over from an idea that was given in the Old Testament, the, the, the bearded ones, the mature ones, the ones who, who led um, as the wisdom that was provided in Israel. And then in the, in the New Testament, this very term is used um, sometimes in reference to that, those who are older, but it's generally used as a, as a technical term, if you will, for those who are leading the church. Now, here's what I want us to understand, that these three terms, again, pastor, what's the second one? I heard some of you mumble it, yeah, overseer, right? And then the third one that we just mentioned is elder, right? These are used interchangeably. So go with me, if you would, in your Bibles, please, to Acts 20. <coughs> Acts 20. So I want to demonstrate for you that in the New Testament, these three titles are all given to one office. They express different facets, different emphasis, but they are all given to the same individual. So here we are in Acts 20. Paul is, is nearing the end of his journey. Uh, it, 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 the end probably of his ministry, the, um, there was some sort of a training center in Ephesus. We don't know all of the details of that, but I kind of like to think of it as a seminary. There were, there were pastors going out of Ephesus, so something was going on in Ephesus. There was clearly a training center there that, that Paul had been involved in. Well, Paul gets run out, as Paul was inclined to do, uh, gets run out of town. And uh, he wants to visit one last time with the leaders of the Ephesian church. All right, so this brings us to Acts 20 and verse 17. From Miletus, where Paul was staying, he sent to Ephesus to call for whom? The elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, all right, now, Paul's speech is beautiful. I mean, this, this challenge that he gives to these men who were there before him is a magnificent rehearsal of his own ministry. And then at the end of that, he applies it to them. All right, so he, he gives some background. He, he 
chronicles his own ministry to them, and then he says in verse 28, here's what I want you to do about it. Here's what I want you to be thinking what you should do, verse 28, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the, what? To the flock. Now, what is that a reference to of our three terms? Shepherd, exactly, right? So he is saying, you oversee the flock. Now, he doesn't use the word shepherd yet, but that's clearly what it's a reference to. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you, what's the word? Overseers. So we have now seen all three terms introduced in reference to this same group that was called to Miletus from Ephesus. Now go on. To do what? To shepherd. Now that's the verb, not the noun, but it's the same word. To pastor. We could actually translate it that way. So I'm challenging you to pastor, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now he continues uh, what analogy in verse 29? That I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So what's he linking it to? Which, which, yeah, shepherd, right? Pastor. So here we see in this passage, and the reason I really like this one is because all three are there. There's other passages throughout the New Testament. We'll see two of them linked together. Uh, we'll see that in just a few moments. But this is the one where we see uh, all three. If you want to jot down some other references, you want to be thinking about Titus 1, 5 through 7, and 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. So, pastor, elder, overseer, all the same same office. Now, with that background being led, we have to ask ourselves another question, and that is about this this thing that is hotly debated in some Christian circles about the plurality of elders, right? Should there be more than one elder in a congregation, or must there be more than one elder in a congregation? I would say it this way, the New Testament, as I look at the New Testament, as I look at the book of Acts, it seems to allow for, and in fact, I might even say it seems to endorse the presence of of more than one elder within a congregation. I mean, the references go on and on. Acts 14, 23, Acts 16, 4, Acts 20, 17, Acts 21, 18. In fact, every time we see elder in reference to the church officer, every time we see it in the book of Acts, it's in the plural. But it doesn't stop with the book of Acts, right? Philippians 1, Titus 1.5, James 5.14. Now, there are a couple times that we see elder in the singular after the book of Acts, but the vast majority of them are plural, which is interesting. And I think, here's how I take it. You can take it differently. Good men will take it differently, all right? But here's what I derive from that as I look at the way the New Testament treats this, is that that the plurality, having more than one elder, is a wise, it is a helpful, it is a, a smiled-upon um, practice for the local New Testament church. Now, I will say that when you come to the handbook for church operation, which is the pastoral epistles, in First Timothy 5, we actually see we see it in the singular. We see overseer in the singular and deacon in the 
plural, which I, I think is still telling. Um, and so I don't, I don't think there's some sort of a requirement for, um, for this, but I do think it is, is the general practice of the New Testament church. So I'm, I'm kind of splitting the hairs, right? Some are going to say, well, you got to have it. It's required. It's, it's biblical. And, and I agree that it's biblical. I don't know, however, that the case is strong enough to say absolutely and always you have to. Um, I would also add this. Many who, who require plurality require some sort of a lay eldership. And uh, that, to me, cuts against what 1 Corinthians 9 teaches um, and really 1 Timothy 5, which I, I already referred to. So all of that to simply say, I believe it's wise and helpful to have more than one elder when it's possible. I don't necessarily view it as a New Testament uh, requirement. Now, you can disagree. This is one of those areas that good people are going to look at the text, they're going to study it out, and they're going to come to sincere differences. This is not a matter of separation. This is not a matter of, of orthodoxy. This is a matter of looking at the text, understand it as best we can, and doing, by God's grace, our, our best to implement it. So that's kind of a sidebar, but I think it's relevant when we think about a well-ordered church as it is taught uh, in, in the New Testament. We're blessed to have more than one elder, pastor, overseer, right? So it would be very appropriate when you see Pastor Dan next week to refer to him as Bishop Dan, right? <laughs> overseer, right? Um, and, uh, or, or Elder Dan. Um, all right, we are blessed to have more than one uh, it, it, it creates for a situation where we can share the ministry, where we can share the load, where there's more than one resource for our congregation uh, in respect to leadership. And so uh, we think it's appropriate and wise and good and helpful, uh, and we are blessed uh, that God has given uh, more than one in our midst. So the plurality of elders uh, is, is taught, I think. It doesn't necessarily require a board of elders or or that kind of a, a thing. Um, God still never created a two-headed monster, and so we think it's appropriate still for there to be leader, a leader amongst leaders. Um, but this is uh, something that I think is, is laid out in the New Testament for us as helpful and wise. So let's talk a little bit about pastoral authority. All right, This is where we really get into the kind of nitty-gritty uh, of what we do as a church. And I think it's important for us to all understand the role of the pastor. So the pastor is a term, that's the shepherd, right, that introduces responsibility. And also with responsibility comes some leadership, some authority, if you will. Uh, the word overseer, I mean, that's a manager. It was a political manager in the ancient world. And in fact, 1 Timothy 5 says it this way, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Go with me, if you would, to um, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13. I do have it here on the screen as well. In verse 17, now if you go back and look at the context, you're talking, you, you realize that he's talking in the context of the response to the leaders within the church. 
those that teach the word. Hebrews 13, 17, he says, Obey those who have rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. Now, that phrase is very heavy for a pastor. That pastors are given the responsibility to watch for the souls of those within their flock. But the the congregation's response to that is given in the first part of the verse, obey those who have the rule over you and be submissive because they watch for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. I remember a number of years ago that we, I knew a gentleman who was uh, a member of of a church and he was very... um, hit and miss, very sporadic, very dedicated to his job, but not quite so much to the work of the Lord. And um, upon the occasion of a pastor retiring, a guest speaker came in and preached from this passage and reminded us that as, as a congregation, our responsibility is to rightly respond to the leadership that God has given, that our response is important because they must give an account. You see, there's a synergy that exists there. I must respond rightly to the spiritual leadership that God has given me because they are responsible for me. And so that goes back and forth. And the man was very convicted um, and actually came to me and, and, and said, I'm going to make some changes. Uh, the Lord has, has spoken to me. And really, after that point, was remarkably different because he realized that I am not the kind of church member that I ought to be for the pastor who is responsible for my spiritual care. So, pastors are given a responsibility in this passage to watch for the souls of those within their care, and those that are, that are in that ministry have the responsibility as well to respond appropriately. And so, there is this undeniable teaching of the idea of spiritual authority. Now, we are very bothered in our society by concepts of leadership, authority, obedience, submission, right? Those things just kind of, you're making me a little nervous, Pastor, when you start talking about these things. Why? Because that gets abused, doesn't it? Right? In our culture, we are afraid to give too much authority to someone, too much leadership to someone because they might misuse that authority. Well, what's the responsibility given to the authority in Scripture? That, That leader is to watch for your soul. In other words, they are to leverage that authority in such a way that it is for the good of those that are following them. So, how do we see that handled in Scripture? Well, we see it handled this way. The pastor's position is one of leadership. It is one of influence. It is one of example. It is not one of autocracy. Consider with me 1 Peter 5. This is another one of those passages where we see the terms wedded together. Shepherd the flock of God. So this is Peter giving responsibility to pastors, right? He's saying, pastor the flock. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. Serving as, oh, there's our second term, right? Overseers. Now, how do you do that, pastor? What's your responsibility in that? Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So Peter comes right out and says, now, pastor, 
Your responsibility is to not abuse your authority, but rather to leverage the opportunities you have for the good of those that are following you, to, for the good of the flock. Now, this is important for you to understand, even if you're not a pastor, because you need to understand biblically what is prescribed as the responsibility of the pastor, right? As, as a, a person in the flock, what should you expect from your under-shepherd? Well, it's given to us very clearly in Scripture. Pastor, you're not to use that, that, that leadership to club the sheep, right? To, to hit the sheep over the head with your authority. That's what he means when he says, right? Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being, what? Examples. So that when the chief shepherd appears, oh, there's this little reminder, pastor, you are not the main shepherd. There's really a shepherd that's over you, who's, who those sheep really belong to. And your opportunity as a shepherd is just a reflection as an under-shepherd to the chief shepherd, that you will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. So the pastor's position is one of influence. It is one of example. It is not one of autocracy. It is not this attitude that exists in far too many churches. Well, you know, if you don't agree with me, there's the door. The pastor is not to be a totalitarian. He's not to be a dictator. He is to exercise leadership. He is to rightly leverage his authority for the good of those who are following. Okay, well, that sounds different than Hebrews, pastor. Right? I mean, Hebrews, like, rule and stuff like that. So how do we deal with Hebrews 13? Let's go back to it and consider the words that are actually there. Obey. This is a really interesting word. This word obey that's translated here is the idea of being influenced or convinced. In fact, this same Greek word is used with a prefix to mean misled. When you are misled, are you forced to do something? No, you're influenced to do something, in that case, that's, that's wrong, or that's not good, or that's not helpful, or that's not true. Well, you take that prefix off, and it still carries that same idea. It's the idea of being led, being influenced, being persuaded. So when we're talking about obey those that have the rule over you, keep this in mind. The pastor has, has nothing to teach you except what? What the Word says. As those who sit under the sound of the word, we are responsible to be influenced, to be led. That's the idea that's given here. What about this phrase, those who rule? Well, that's just simply could be translated leaders. Right? So there's this balance in the text that leaders are to lead, but they are to do so in a way that is, that is influential, that is, that is right, that is not dictatorial, that is not demanding. So you, you've heard me say before, if, if, if a, a spiritual leader says, God has said, he should be prepared to defend how God has said from, from here, 
not like I got this feeling in my heart that God said. You know what I mean? Like the real thing. Like God actually said it. And if a leader is taking what God has said and is applying it, that leader should also be very clear. This is an area of wisdom, right? You'll hear me say that from time to time. Like this is, this is within the arena of how do we apply the text, and this seems wisest to me. And I don't even think leaders should apologize for doing that. They should, but they should be honest enough to say, like, we're in the realm here of not clearly revealed. We're here dealing with one of those questions of how do we best obey the scriptures, all right? One, um, one commentator uh, comments on the Greek text that the idea is to submit means to yield trustingly. It, it implies willingness. None of this in Hebrews 13 or anywhere else in the New Testament for that matter implies totalitarianism or, or force. And so let, we say it this way. The function of the pastor is performed through careful leadership. The overseer is to lead and direct the flock through biblical management and teaching. I believe that weak or lethargic pastoral leadership is inconsistent with the teaching of the New Testament. By the same token, so is dictatorial leadership. So the New Testament teaches the local church is to be pastor-led, it is to be biblically guided, it is to be spirit-controlled. Going back to our first point, the New Testament provides a wonderful balance between pastoral leadership and congregational authority, which is actually what we're going to get to next. There's a healthy coexistence of pastoral leadership and congregational uh, authority that, that goes together in mutual submission and humility. So we describe our church as pastor-elder-led, congregationally governed. I read to you from the Cambridge Platform of 1648. This is a doctrinal statement by Puritan churches in colonial America. The church, or excuse me, the government of the church is a mixed government. In respect of Christ, the head of the king the head and king of the church, the sovereign power residing in him and exercised by him, it is a monarchy. In other words, right, Christ is king. In respect to the body or brotherhood of the church and power from Christ granted to them, it resembles a democracy. In respect of the presbytery, what's that word? What do they mean? The eldership, right? So in respect to this this group of elders and the power committed to them it is aristocracy. Now, what they're simply saying in this Cambridge platform is no form of human government perfectly resembles the church. There are elements of each of these different kinds of government in the church. And so that brings us now to congregational um, leadership. So the New Testament encourages healthy leadership, pastor, elder, overseer, but the New Testament also encourages appropriate congregationalism. Some have this mistaken notion that congregationalism is the same as American democracy or that it is a byproduct of it. In fact, after I finished my first master's degree, I started on a second master's degree at a certain seminary in Pensacola, Florida that will remain nameless. This particular seminary had connected with it this thing that they called a church but was in no sense a biblical New Testament church. Um, so the professors there sometimes had this very funny way of running around uh, the text. 
And I was in this class on Baptist history and polity. And I'm sitting there, you know, listening to uh, the professor say, well, now, voting, that's just a byproduct of the American experiment. The reason we vote in churches is because that's the way we do it in America. That's not really in the Bible. So I did my final paper on voting in the New Testament. Um, I got a pretty decent grade on it, too. I don't know if I convinced him, but um, I actually believe that congregationalism is taught in the New Testament. Uh, It teaches pastoral leadership. That's true. We've looked at that. But there's also a very prominent emphasis on the rule of a spirit-led congregation. Now, spirit-led is important, right? Go back to our previous, you don't have a church unless you have regenerate people who have the Holy Spirit. There were decisions that the apostles themselves referred to the congregation at large. Um, Because of the biblical model, I believe it's right for the congregation to perform certain functions. I did not know how far I would get this morning, and we are now at about a quarter till. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold congregationalism for next week. But the reason I wanted to start on it is because I didn't want to leave pastoral leadership hanging in the wind, right? I didn't want to say, the pastor's the leader without a sequel, all right? So please understand that next week we are going to make a case from Scripture for congregationalism. I actually believe that the congregation is the final say. Uh, I believe that's what's, what's modeled in the New Testament, and I'm going to kind of lay out the case for that uh, next week and, and kind of give you my understanding of how congregationalism works. So that's important, and I think it's important to go ahead and start down that road this week so we don't just leave with this um, Presbyterian model in our heads. I mean, really, that some of our good brethren... Uh, who who love the Lord and love the text of Scripture, believe in an elder rule model where the congregation does not have a say. Now, they're doing it because they believe it's biblical, um, and I believe they're wrong. They're good wrong, but I just don't think it's quite what the New Testament teaches. And then I will say this, too, um, kind of in reflection on that. Understand, too, when we're talking about polity, we're talking about the way the governance of the churches, we are way deep into this, this realm of interpretation. You, you get that? We're not talking about, like, your Presbyterian brethren are, are bad people. That's not, that's not what we're, we're doing. What we're doing is we're saying, okay, look, here's the text, here's the model, here's what the epistles say in commentary on it, and as best we understand, this is how we implement it. By God's grace, we could be wrong. If we knew we were wrong, we would change. We have good brethren who disagree with us on this. Okay, so we just understand that kind of those, these, these things are like not non-negotiables. What is a non-negotiable? The gospel, right? The gospel is what makes up the church. And uh, all good brethren are going to uh, agree on that. So by God's grace, we want to do what we can. Uh, to order the church in a way that is pleasing to God. Next week, we'll continue our study from the book of Acts, and uh, by God's grace, it will help us and inform us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to take to consider 
um, the way that you have set up your church. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful, that we would, um, as best we can, implement your intentions and live those out in a spirit-led way, even with one another. Continue to use your word in our hearts and our lives as we apply these texts. We pray all these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. All right, let me make a few quick announcements. Uh, I'll make an announcement, and then Pastor Dan, you can come and make an announcement. Uh, we'd want to remind you that men's um, Bible study is tonight. Men, remember that we skipped last week, so we are making up for a week. So we're actually uh, a week behind, and uh, we'll be discussing two chapters tonight, uh, namely chapters 3 and 4. So chapters 3 and 4 of our book tonight. Look forward to meeting with you men this evening. We are looking forward to our praise and thanks celebration on November 24th. I think it's going to be a wonderful time of us um, praising the Lord together, both through song and through testimony. Um, so be thinking about uh, some things that you can share with one another that the Lord has done in your heart and life over this week, uh, excuse me, over this year. This week and probably tomorrow, the sign-up sheet will go out for um, what to bring. Uh, the church will buy the turkeys, and uh, we already have two volunteers to, to cook those, and then um, all of the side dishes and desserts and desserts and desserts and desserts, and uh, all of the other things will be on that sign-up sheet. Um, just to let you know how the sign-up sheet works, when we put a, a bunch of slots, that's so there's room for people to sign up. It doesn't necessarily we mean we need every slot filled, right? So if there's 10 slots there, don't feel like, oh, there's four left. I've got to sign up for all of them, right? That's just to give us enough room on the sign-up sheet for people to sign up uh, and also to give you an idea of what other people are bringing so that we don't wind up with, you know, four bowls of stuffing and no corn, right? So, just, you know, so that it kind of helps you to gauge what other people are bringing. Um, and, uh, and, and plan accordingly. I also want to remind you that the, um, the Thanksgiving offering this year, our goal is about $2,500 um, so that we can furnish and decorate uh, this room and the, the lobby areas we come in. And we're also trying to get that so it is conducive to use for discipleship. So there's some, some places to sit there. And uh, that's really, as you know, something we're passionate about and we want even our facilities, to lend themselves to the, the ministry philosophy. So we're looking forward to getting some things uh, done here in this lobby, and that's what the Thanksgiving offering uh, will, be, will be for. So if you want to give even prior to the Thanksgiving offering, you can do so by designating it um, either online or as you, as you give in the offering. So if you have additional funds that you'd like to, to share in that well. All right, Pastor Dan, why don't you come and make an announcement, and then you can dismiss us in prayer. The children will be having a little uh, special uh, Christmas special music for December, uh, so we'll be getting some music and practicing together for that. Um, along with that, we'll also be doing a caroling at one of the nursing homes near here. Um, and so if your child has... Um, any type of uh, special music or Christmas music that they've been working up in lessons or uh, they've been working on verses, or let me know. We can put that in and um, have an opportunity there to, to serve there. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
our um, uh, morning this morning where we looked at your word. We thank you for the encouragement we find from the book of Acts and from how you have uh, set up our the way we run our churches. And I pray that you'd help us to um, find encouragement from our church to uh, better serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.